0: As we look this morning to our text, uh, the title of this morning's sermon from Romans chapter 11, 1 to 6 is God preserves Israel. God preserves Israel. And we have spent uh, a lot of time in the last couple of chapters uh, discovering who the true Israel is, according to Paul the Apostle. Therefore, according to the Holy Spirit, the divine author. Therefore, according to God, who has decreed such things. Uh, This passage, we will begin uh, to examine exactly not only who Israel is, but what is the distinction uh, between Israel and the Gentiles. And so uh, further, Paul lays it out for us, as we'll see in this passage, that there's not only a distinction between true Israel and the Gentiles, but there's also an expectation for how the Gentiles relate to the true nation of Israel and God's people. But Paul starts, he he gets right to it. And we have been talking about how when we look at Romans, we don't look at Romans as a theological seminar. We look at it as a letter by Paul, uh, vocally dictated to Tertius, as we'll see at the very end of the letter, uh, to decree the things that come from the Lord concerning salvation, concerning Israel, and concerning all the features of what Christ has accomplished for both the Jews and the Gentiles but also concerning judgment toward Jews and the Gentiles and each of these without partiality. And so when we look to this, uh, we come to a simple thought with profound and serious implications, serious implications. And the simple thought is this. As you look at this chapter, you look at Romans chapter nine to 11. uh, It's a simple thought we come to. If God is not finished with Israel then Israel is not finished. If God is not finished with Israel, then Israel is not finished. And so it's up for us in the Bible and the word of God to determine who is Israel. And we've discussed that in Romans chapter nine. We looked at that also as it relates to Romans chapter 10. We've been looking at that in previous chapters in Romans. But carrying that forward through this epistle We see that God is certainly not finished with them because Paul brings up that very point and he says it in a very direct way. But then Israel is not finished. And so we cannot blend Israel with the present generation. We can't change the terms of how we identify who Israel is. Uh, We have to identify Israel on the basis of how God identifies Israel. And then we have to consider then what will God do? What has he done? And what will he do? What will he do in the future concerning them? But to this point, uh, I believe that the Bible is full of distinctions, and I believe that Paul is also uh, laying out many distinctions to help us understand who the true Israel is. He doesn't just make statements about Israel and then leaves us to figure out who is he speaking on behalf of and for concerning salvation, concerning judgment. Paul always explains, when I'm using this term, I'm using it this way. I mean it for these people. I, I, when I speak of what God has accomplished, I mean it for this piece. very specific, and he doesn't abandon that, uh, that specific approach when, when he's dealing with Israel. So he provides many distinctions, many distinctions. And the first one he does is he places himself by his tribe as one who was saved out of unbelieving Israel to be considered among remnant Israel, but identifying as an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul himself serves as a bridge. He serves as a bridge between unbelieving Israel, remnant Israel, and also the Gentiles. And in this chapter in Romans 11, Paul is going to proclaim in that very model. So he begins to explain about himself here is how I was in my unbelief. Here's my identification according to my tribe. Now, here is who I am in salvation. And here is uh, the people to whom I was sent in order to herald this glorious salvation from God. And all those distinctions are in play as we look at Romans chapter 11. But Paul did not need to look very far when he began to discuss how God had preserved the people of Israel. He didn't need to look very far. In fact, in verse one, he says, I say, then God has not rejected his people, has he? Well, may it never be that emphatic statement that we find in places such as Romans chapter six. But then he goes to himself. He begins to talk about himself and he says, for I, too, am an Israelite. So God hasn't abandoned his people because he hasn't abandoned me and I'm an Israelite. And then he begins to speak of his descendancy. His natural descendancy first. He's not so much speaking with spiritual distinction uh, explicitly yet. But there is spiritual uh, distinction and a spiritual descendancy uh, in his relationship to Abraham. He's going to get there. And he has in many ways touched on it. But he's dealing with natural descendancy. And he's saying, listen, I'm an Israelite. And the Israelites gave God every reason to abandon them. I'm also a descendant of Abraham. And descendants of Abraham gave God every reason to abandon them. But I'm also of the tribe of Benjamin. So I can identify my people group. I can identify my, my forefather. And I can identify my exact tribe. And on that basis, he's saying... God has not abandoned me. So those things did not simply get left behind in Paul when he became a Christian. Paul doesn't say that that's an unimportant thing when he's dealing with the distinction between remnant Jews and believing Gentiles. He needed only to look to his own salvation because Paul is one who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, a zealous Jew who sanctioned the murder of Christians and participated in their execution. And he was essentially believing about himself that he was God's chief executioner. That's what he believed about himself. He was deceived. He believed he was God's chief executioner, and he was working on behalf of the synagogue, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin council to exterminate Christians. And Paul says, in all that, I'm I'm a Jew. I can identify my people. I can identify my forefather, Abraham, by natural descendancy. And I can identify my exact tribe. And if anyone should have been abandoned among the Jews, it should have been Paul. And if anyone should have been told, you know what, Paul? A declaration from heaven. You know what, Paul? We don't speak about Jews anymore. Because now we're the church. So don't talk about Jewishness. Don't talk about your tribe. Don't mention anything about salvation concerning the remnant. But that's not where Paul was sent. And that's not what God decreed to Paul. And that's not what God decreed from the beginning. So Paul is very much acquainted with this and he brings it up in this way. But listen, if God, the point he's making, if God did not choose for himself a remnant to be saved, Then Saul of Tarsus would have been condemned. There would be no bridge between remnant Jews and believing Gentiles. He would have been condemned. He would have been a man condemned. Could God have saved Gentiles in some other way? Absolutely. But the point is that Paul is saying, I am a work of God's preserving mercy toward remnant Jews, I am the evidence. I am the evidence that I, too, will be reunited with my tribe. I am the evidence. I will not lose my distinction in being a, saved, uh, being a saved believer of the Lord Jesus. I will not lose my distinction as a messenger of the Lord. But I am from this tribe and I will be reunited with the tribe. But he's also going to give you the terms and how that will take place. That it's not just natural descendancy. It's not just a longing to be among your tribe. It's how will God reconcile people to himself. And yet with distinction ensure that they are considered to be Jews who believe and also Gentiles who also believe. So even further, you see this even in Paul's emphasis in ministry. See, Paul carried himself as though he believed in the doctrine concerning the remnant. He carried himself that way. He didn't see it as a secondary issue. He didn't have a lot of fanciful quotes about it. But he carried himself as if that's true. Why? Because Paul preached to the Jews first. He preached to the Jews first. Even as we begin Romans 1, he says it explicitly. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. Greek synonymous with Gentiles of the known world. But listen, Romans 1, as he says that, it is a fool's errand or a fool's mission if God had not reserved for himself a remnant uh, among the Jews. It is a fool's errand if God had not reserved for himself a remnant among the Jews. And we know it's not a fool's errand. He says that God sent me to do this, and so I go. Paul's going to preach to the Jews first. And in doing so, that's a testimony concerning what is said in Romans 11. It is a direct testimony within the letter that Paul carried himself as if it were true. And even as you look and you march forward through the timeline of the letter itself, Paul is demonstrating where he's going with the things he has to explain to the Gentiles and the Jews. And you can be sure that he has committed himself to not... But particularly saying this for the first time among people, I believe in the reading of this letter, people are hearing it for the first time. But my point is, Paul preached this doctrine. He preached this. He lived as though his mission was to save uh, by God's hand, saving and proclaiming uh, salvation among the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So when he goes to the Jews first, it was to declare God's scheme. It was to declare God's salvation plan. It was to declare God's priority to bring salvation to them first. It was showing that that is God's priority. Paul ministered as though that was the case among the known world. And then he went to the Gentiles. But in all this, in all this, understand this very important point. In all this, Paul recognized himself as an israelite still he recognized himself as an israelite still and so as i've mentioned he points first to his lineage to abraham and then to the identification of his tribe and this tribe of his was certainly a prestigious tribe among the 12 tribes It was one of the twelve. He was a direct descendant, as I've mentioned, of Abraham. But not only Abraham, but of Isaac and Jacob. Down to Jacob's son Benjamin, for whom the tribe is named. And so Paul identified directly with his history. He identified directly with it. And they descended from Jacob directly. So Paul first showed that God had not forgotten the Israelites. But he also showed that God had not forgotten Paul himself. Paul's standing before the people was a testimony of the doctrine concerning the remnant. Paul is saying, I'm standing here. I'm giving you my tribe. I'm giving you my natural descendancy. I'm relating it to my spiritual descendancy. I'm making all these distinctions. And I'm demonstrating that God will preserve his remnant. Because to this point... If you understand something that now we, we, we see it for what it is, but Paul could still identify his tribal origin. That has been lost in the time in which we find ourselves today for many, many reasons. But Paul could still identify his tribal origin. So if you think about it, he's still chief among the Jews because he's able to identify this tribal origin. And he belongs to a tribe that is of great consideration. And he does so in front of all the people. He knew for certain he was a physical descendant of one of the tribes, of uh, one of the twelve. But listen, let's look at verse two. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, And I think Paul says that for a couple reasons. We'll get into it. It wasn't Paul who chose his tribe or his people. It wasn't him who decided, you know, I'm going to identify with this tribe and I'm going to identify with this tribe and with this people. But in fact, Paul says what we've been saying about Romans all along. It's all God. It was all God. It was God choosing the 12 tribes. It was God choosing those who would belong to the tribes. And it was God choosing Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, who sold very low concerning what he thought God was like and what he thought he should do for God. He thought it was only about extinguishing everybody outside of the tribes and preserving the tribes in his way by works. That's what Saul of Tarsus thought. So God chose from the tribe of Benjamin one of its most prolific members. And chose him to save him. So it was God who chose. It was God who chose his people. And he did so with foreknowledge. I want to explain that. That's not simply awareness of events. It's not saying that God was simply aware that he needed to make a decision. When you see this word foreknowledge, it speaks of God's decree. It's what God has initiated and acted by his divine will, that cannot be overthrown by any. And so, when he elects his tribes, he does so with the knowledge of their salvation and with a very active and aggressive hand in saving them and orchestrating events to preserve them throughout all of human history. So, that is what the word foreknowledge means. I know a lot of people play with that word uh, to their own demise. But foreknowledge is not simply awareness of events. We're not speaking of some kind of human agency that needs us to help. them. We're speaking of God and God knew who they were. He knew what he wanted to accomplish in them and he decreed it. And the first time we see that verbally stated is Genesis 315. Because they are of his tribes that he will preserve the remnant. They are of the seed of the woman. They are of the seed of the woman. Paul then goes to a time during the captivity. He goes to a time uh, during the captivity where Elijah the prophet was outnumbered by the forces of Jezebel. He goes to a time during the captivity where Elijah the prophet was outnumbered by the forces of Jezebel. And as we step back, I I want you, if you're already doing it, that's, that's a blessing. I want you to, when you see an Old Testament reference... I want you to consider not only why it's there in the most abstract way, but I want you to understand the comparison that's being made. And I believe that Paul brings up Elijah because Paul is a lot like Elijah. He's experiencing things that are very similar. Well, why is that? How can you make that claim? Well, because the prophets and apostles are very much related in how they approach declaring what they will for God. And they are, in many cases, the first generation of their kind to do so. And so they experience a certain level of hostility among people who are certainly hearing things for the first time and aggressively attacking the things they're hearing. And I'm not saying that that doesn't get worse because it does. But I'm saying that the prophets and apostles, the ministry entrusted to them is a very similar ministry in different covenants at times and in different ages. But having said that, he compares himself, I believe, implicitly to Elijah. But it's not simply for comparison. It's to show you what takes place concerning the remnant. See, Paul's ministry was built on the fact of what God spoke to Elijah. Paul's existence is built on the fact of what God spoke to Elijah. Paul then goes to this time of the captivity. And Elijah, being outnumbered by the forces of Jezebel and by the false prophets of Baal, you can read about that account in the book of Kings. But Elijah established proof among them that their idols were in vain. Remember that with the account of the altars. Elijah himself proves that Yahweh is against those false prophets of Baal who prove for themselves that they're False God is worthless. But Paul is concerned most most with presenting this testimony from Scripture. Because that's what he says. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then look what he says. Because this is what you and I are interested in. We're interested in presenting the point from Scripture. Or do you not know what the Scripture says? in the passage about Elijah. So Paul says, if I'm going to bring you evidence about the doctrine concerning the remnant, who they are, when God will deal with them, what is their place in the future beyond the very text we're in this morning? What is their place in the future beyond our time looking ahead? Then our appeal must be the scripture because that's where Paul went. Paul says, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. So you see here, Paul is not interested. And I see this all the time. Paul is not interested in these witty taglines. He's not interested in these eloquent statements about who's the true remnant, remnant versus who's not. And people teaching this false ideology, uh, trying to conflate the two and confuse people. He's not interested in that. Everybody's got a nice little phrase. And things that they say to distract you from where Paul's going. What does the scripture say? What does the Old Testament say? I see all these debates about all this stuff and I always look and there's no scripture. It's just people saying this is what this rabbi says. Rabbi so-and-so says this. Evangelical rabbi so-and-so says this. But there's no scripture. You're looking and you're saying, well, where are you getting that from? Oh, books. Oh, I went to a seminar. But what does the scripture say? And that's what Paul is concerned with. When we want to answer the question, who is Israel? How is God going to deal with them as a nation? We don't go. Well, let's read the papers. Let's read the markets. Let's try to see what the president of the United States and other country leaders are doing concerning the land. No. What does the scripture say? And namely, we can even be more specific. What does the Old Testament say? because it starts there and that's where Paul goes and that's where you and I are interested in going because in fact when he answers when he asks that question and answers it he's concerned with Israel's preservation he's talking to you about Israel's preservation how will Israel remain how will they be preserved and he's making distinctions between unbelieving gentiles who arm themselves to prevail against a few remaining israelites And the prophet elijah but even worse than that there's another distinction that's in here by way of our context because he says what does the scripture say in the passage about elijah and listen he almost doesn't even deal with the account of of baal he says how he pleads with god against israel so elijah's going through these things concerning the prophets I'm sorry, concerning uh, the the Gentiles and the people who are against them, his enemies. He's going through all these things and he doesn't say for himself, you know, God, shouldn't we call out Baal? And just that just be the bastion of my whole ministry. No. What he does is he says, Lord, I want to plead. I want to plead with you against your people, Israel, because, listen, your people, Israel, have enabled this. They've allowed this. They've co-signed this. They've joined themselves to the false idols. And so now I'm the only one standing, it appears. And so he pleads against Israel. Well, why? Well, it's even worse than what I believe was happening with the false prophets and, uh, and those who were idol worshipers. I'm not saying that that's not bad and devastating and will be a cause for eternal punishment and judgment. But what I'm saying is what was worse is. Israel was supposed to go to them and represent Yahweh's interests. But Israel at the time had sided against Elijah with them. And in their ashamedness toward God and in their cowardice and in their fear, they had turned against Elijah and sided against God himself. Why? Because Elijah is God's prophet. In your mind, you're probably starting to connect some things with respect to Paul's bringing this in the equation. He's speaking concerning how things are going in his own ministry. And I believe that that is implicit, but I believe it's there because of his identification. Well, who were the ones that persecuted him the most? It was the Jews. It was the Jews. Did he suffer persecution and hostility among the Gentiles? Absolutely. But it was the Jews who followed him. It was the Jews who tried to kill him. Who tried to destroy his ministry. It wasn't necessarily the Gentiles. In fact at wholesale. What we're going to see in Romans 11. Is more Gentiles were receiving salvation. Than the Jews at that time. Well because of the hardening. That was taking place. And we'll discuss that a little more. When we get to that. But. They had turned against Elijah, Israel, God's chosen nation, and they had sided against God. So then it seemed hopeless. And even more, they resorted to murder. Now, this is before the time of Christ. We know what happened during the time of Christ. But look at verse three. This is his plea. With God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. So, you know, you would think here that he's talking about the false prophets, he's talking about Israel, God's people, or supposed to be God's people. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. They not only do not want to hear your voice, they don't want any expression of true worship to you among them. And I alone am left. I don't think Elijah is overstating this. I think it really is appearing to him in this age, in this ministry, in this task that I'm entrusted with, I'm the only one left. Let me pause here. I know, I know, I know it seems that way. I know it seems that way to the modern Christian who is truly faithful. I'm not talking about all these people who are doing this for money, riches, acclaim, who get up here and wax eloquent and say all that they say and they have no attachment to Christ. I know it feels like you are all by yourself. But I will tell you the truth concerning what has been the case in every generation, that God has preserved for himself a remnant. He has preserved for himself Christians in this age. This is your application in this age that will not bow their knee. We may not see them today. We may not find them, But they're there. They're there. I know it seems that you're alone. And for Elijah, it not only seemed that way, it was that way. I alone am left. And the people who will mock you when you begin to really follow Christ. And it really seems like, Lord, does anyone take you seriously? Oh, you're in a cult. You're in a cult. You don't join our programs. You don't don't align yourself with our brand that is attacking the honor of Christ. And you start to really sit back and think, Lord, am I alone? I know I can't be alone because you said the way is narrow, but there's more. And yet you not only press on, but you have to remember there's an army behind you and there's an army with you. And you are in the majority because God is for you. Well, that is essentially what takes place In Elijah. And that's what takes place for Paul, because even as we fast forward, if we were to go to the very end of Timothy, when Paul comes to the end of his life, I believe he was confronted with that very same thing. I'm alone. I'm alone. Not because I've exhausted all my resources, not because I've somehow been thrown out of every camp because I wouldn't conform to things I was supposed to conform to. No, I'm alone because I'm faithful. I'm alone because I'm faithful. I find myself in a prison face death. And he begins to write in this way that he'll write in the end of Romans and dictate. He begins to just ask for the simple things and he begins to check on the people whom he loves. And he's alone. I believe Paul was acquainted with this. And I believe that Jesus, the man of sorrows himself, was acquainted with this and acquaints his people with this. Because then our hope is for the greater kingdom to come when we will stand in the multitudes. I mean, that's the hope. But Elijah and Paul were passing through. They were just passing. They were what you call ambassadors. They were ambassadors. And there was a response. So the response tells me in verse four, you're not alone. Elijah, you're not alone because God responds. Paul, you're not alone. Christian this morning, you're not alone because when you pray, when you read the word, when you study, when you really concern yourself with the wisdom of God, yes, it may seem like you're alone. It may seem like you're outnumbered. It may seem like no one is there, but you're not alone. When God hears your cry, you're not alone. When you can open up the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit and his illumination, you're not alone when you can understand it. When you have the wisdom of God against all the foolishness of every kind of foolishness that exists from every person that would initiate foolishness, be it in the religious or secular sense, you're not alone. You're not alone. And that is not only the evidence of not being alone, but in verse four. It is a response where God speaks directly to the prophet. You and I don't have the benefit of this audible speaking, but we have the great benefit of Scripture of crying out to God, watching his hand provisionally work on our behalf. And then the testimony of Scripture to anchor our souls. But he says to him, I have kept for myself 7000 men. I have kept for myself 7000 men Who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I'll pause here. Even concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in his finest hour, in our finest hour in Gethsemane, where he is arrested. And prior, slightly prior to his arrest, he looks like he's alone. And he says, I can command legions. I can command legions. One angel could kill in this instance. One angel could wipe every single wicked person out at, in this garden. And he says, but my kingdom is not in this world. Because if it were, my servants would fight. But in every age, you have to see your Christian faith, the true faith, the biblical Christian faith. You are surrounded by an army. The army's not here yet. But the army is coming. That's the second coming that we look to. The army's not here yet. Yes, in the spiritual sense, the army is here because there's a spiritual war being fought, unbeknownst to the natural senses. But spiritual discernment shows us we're never alone in this thing. We're never alone. We may be outnumbered visibly, but we're never alone. There's a difference. There's a difference. That simple thought will carry you in your faith and it will carry you in encouraging your soul in the lowest points that you're not alone you're not alone if you're doing it for yourself and you're if you're doing it for your own honor and you're surrounded by multitudes of people you are truly alone you are alone but if it is you and the lord you're not alone so the divine response is, I've kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who have not. So they're demonstrated by what they have not done, and they have not succumbed to idolatry. Well, then look at this. I'm not only talking about the past. I'm talking about the present and the future, because he says in the same way. Then Paul says in the same way. Then. Well, why do you think he's writing this to the Romans? Well, because in the Roman Empire, it certainly looked like the Christians were outgunned and outmanned. And Paul is saying in the same way, I know that there's Jewish people or Jewishness that is persecuting me. And I know it looks like that God has abandoned this cause. But those aren't his Jews if they don't repent. He has rather reserved for himself a people who will not succumb to idolatry, who will not rebel against him. He has he has reserved them for himself. So and and he compares it to the present time. He says in the same way, then there has also come to be at the present time, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. I'm going to back up just a little bit. Consider this point. The doctrine of the remnant is under attack because you have individuals who don't belong to faith in Christ, who certainly don't belong to the remnant, and they want to distract you from this reality. So they introduce and inject everything else into the equation. Because if you can steer people away from this glorious doctrine of the remnant, you can steer people away from God's grace and salvation. You can steer people away from the fact that they have so much more than meets the eye in this life. They have so much more than meets the eye. You can steer them away from that. But our our great message of hope, we talked about this even in Peter, our great message of hope is not what is reserved for us in this life alone. It is what is to come, eternity. And that is how Paul is speaking as we transition to verses 5 And six. But I say that as we look back, all of this is under divine decree, because in verse four, the reply to Elijah is what Paul identifies as the divine response. This is a decree directly from God himself, and it is concerning the perpetual that is the continual preservation of Israel. Listen to not only survive the Old Testament era. But we must see this from the vantage point of Paul. So he's not only saying look I bring in Elijah because during that time great story about Elijah folks during that time there were people who were in idolatry and God said that there will be people who will not be end of story that's not what Paul is saying that's not why he brings it up we have to see it from his vantage point he wrote that God declared there would be a remaining number A few Israelites that would be preserved from the vantage point of the future related to the Old Testament and also the future related to the New Testament. Well, why? Because Paul, as we move through Romans chapter 11, he doesn't identify that the remnant has been completely brought in and discovered to the point in which he's writing, But he still maintains their distinction as a people. That's a very important point to catch. It's a very important point to catch. He's speaking from the future vantage point of the Old Testament. He's speaking from the future vantage point according to the New Testament. And he'll even explain explicitly when God will select, identify, select in terms of he's already elected them, but select them in in space and time. Begin to deal with them specifically and how he's going to deal with them and when. He'll bring that up. But this few, he discusses, will be brought through the Old Testament and the new and into eternal fellowship. This isn't a numbers game. It's not a numbers game for Paul. And it certainly is not a numbers game for the true preacher of righteousness, where you're trying to count the heads of people you think you have in some way impacted and brought the salvation. I know people like to do that. And you know kind of in a census way. That they don't know that they're really trying to fill, fill their egos. But I believe that that's the case. My point is because Paul's hope was. What will happen in the future. Because what it looked like in the present was. Nobody was listening to him. And remember he brought up Isaiah before. In the in the chapter previously. Nobody believed Isaiah's report. But he's saying. But the goal is necessarily. To understand that God in the present time has still preserved his people. And he will preserve them in the future. Well, preacher, how do you know that? Because our number is small and few. Well, you're here. And if you're here, then the church age continues. And there are Christians spread out among us in other places. And they're there. And so God has preserved them. And listen, there is a remnant that will be preserved among the Jews, according to the 12 tribes, and they will be gathered in as soon as the ingathering of the Gentiles is completed. So if there's nobody left, you can't gather anybody in. The point is concerning Gentiles in Israel, there will come a time where both groups will be completely gathered in. But it starts with the Gentiles first. Starts with the Gentiles first. He wrote that God declared there would be a remaining number of few Israelites that would be preserved. He says at the present time. He speaks from the vantage point of the present time. But listen to this with eyes forward to the end of time and to eternity. So he speaks from the vantage point of the present time with eyes forward to the end of time. So he's looking at the end of time. And where am I getting that from? If we were to just fast forward through Romans chapter 11, as you perhaps are studying this and preparing, uh, if you look, everything moving forward deals with what I just said. All the verses that begin to move us into understanding how might we then conduct ourselves concerning Israel as Gentiles. Well, it deals with salvation. It deals with eternity. It deals with what God will do with them in the future. My problem with these false eschatological positions is that they emphasize the Gentiles to the detriment of remnant Israel. They emphasize the Gentiles to the detriment of remnant Israel. And if God has decreed that he has specifically identified them, he has elected them and he has not dealt with them yet, but he will deal with them soon. Then who am I to change that scheme? That is a very wicked and dangerous game. And I don't care how shirt and tie shoe shoe shine and polished the uh, the theory is. I don't care how academic and astute it sounds. It is a dangerous game to move the marker that God has set. And to begin to make claims that God will not do as he said he will do. That is a dangerous game. And there will be literal hell to pay for anyone who plays that game to the detriment of their soul. That is a warning. But it's also a warning that the end times are very important. And I would say the same for anyone who declares that it's not. But when we look to these things, when we look to these things, we consider that Paul's vantage point is a very important one. It's a very important one, because in this, he speaks from the vantage point of the church age, which you and I are in. We're in the age of the church's existence. I believe we are in the last days of the church's existence Well, where am I getting that from? I'm getting that from John the Apostle. We are in the last days. Jesus spoke as though as soon as he arrived, as soon as he accomplished salvation for sinners, for his elect, we entered the last days. When he consummated that act, we are now in the church age, but we are in the last days. And I would say the time in which The divine author through the human authors wrote the New Testament scripture. They had a view toward the end of the age. And God's timing is going to be his timing. But I'm saying if you really think that was slightly around 2000 years ago. But in all that time, one thing hasn't happened. You see the divine author... You see the human authors and the true preachers of righteousness. You see the prophets. Nobody blends the Gentiles and the remnant together so much that there's a failure to account for the distinct time period in which God will deal with them as laid out in the verses to follow. My appeal is to Scripture. Because he says, in the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time listen a remnant oh so there's a remnant that's going to be preserved well well by what standard how is God going to achieve that do I need to do something do I need to usher in the kingdom do I need to wait for a nation to appear do I need to uh, do I need to vote more do I need to legislate more what do I need to do to see this happen no you need not do any of that why because the standard is God's election the standard is, is God's election. Look at verse 5. According to God's gracious choice, this is already an accomplished act. Well, I'm not just talking about the preservation of a people. I'm not just referring to that because that's not what Paul is just referring to. Paul is referring to salvation. He's referring to eternal salvation. He's not just talking about how do I stave off my enemies? How do we not, as a people, become captured? Because non-remnant Israel has always been concerned with that. Non-remnant Israel has always said, how do we defeat our enemies? How do we stop ourselves from losing our culture, our identity? And most of the time, what they arrived at was, let's kill anybody that points us to the spiritual reality. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who who kill the prophets, and paraphrase. But listen... It's by God's gracious choice. He elected them. And then he makes a distinction in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. We have for us salvation. He's talking about the kind of preservation that relates to salvation and salvation alone. There's no other kind of remnant. There's no other kind of preservation. It's not simply, oh, you're from a tribe, or I'm from a tribe. Oh, that's great. We're preserved no he's talking about salvation and he's talking about those who preserve themselves according to the remnant the remnant is going to be preserved by god the non-remnant will try to preserve themselves i will raise the stakes on that statement i think in the present age as hostility mounts towards christianity You can see who's truly born again and who's not by that same way. Well, why? Because Paul identifies. If I'm trying to preserve myself to the detriment of my testimony concerning salvation in Christ, that is works. That's works based righteousness. Self-preservation is works based righteousness. Living by faith in the son of God and in the accomplished and finished work of his cross, that is living by faith. That's living by grace in the face of what the world throws at you. I'm not saying one must not plan. One must not act in accordance with God's will. But those are works that are given to you because of the faith that's given to you. It's not I'm trying to perform my way into somehow being preserved at the final hour. I recognize that that disqualifies a whole lot of entities that exist because they're doing it by works. It disqualifies a lot of doctrine, a lot of false doctrine that tries to make Israel something other than God's righteous choice. Because I'm not concerned with Israel as a whole. That's not what Paul is concerned with related to the remnant in preaching and witnessing. I'm concerned with them as a whole because I don't know who the remnant is. But my concern is the remnant. Him preserving the remnant. And he makes that distinction. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. He's not saying at one point it was on the basis of works and it's not. But he's saying those who tried to achieve it by works are demonstrated to be outside of the remnant that they think they're in. Because otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He says this in very plain terms, that the Jew, the true Jew is saved in this way and the true Gentile is saved in this way. as we look to close all of this, I will say this. He doesn't, the writer, the divine author, the Holy Spirit and Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't provide these distinctions in the means of God's grace. Okay? Because people like to make a caricature of that. He doesn't provide distinctions in the means of God's grace and divine election. That is the salvation plan by which God has established and decreed salvation for the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. That is how he elects both Jews and Gentiles to one Lord, one faith and one baptism. So it's not that one experiences it by performance. One experiences it by grace and faith. No, all experience it by grace and faith. And the reason is election. It's election. Election. Oh, well, that's not an important doctrine. That's a wicked statement. It is an important doctrine because it is how God saves. He elects the remnant. This is God's act. This is God's plan. And it is. Listen to this. It is not man's responsibility to replace the raise the remnant or raise up the remnant. God has already chosen the remnant. And Paul will further tell us, as we look at this the next time we're together, he will tell us when that remnant will be identified by God. God chose them, God preserves them, and then God is going to identify them before the world, on the world stage. For verse five, Paul brought the Romans to the present era. There still stands a remnant among Israelites to the present day, according to God's gracious choice. Paul is answering the question he posed in verse one. I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? That's the question that he's been answering. So God's remnant is preserved by God's grace alone in the same way that the Christian cannot alter grace as a means of God's salvation among the Gentiles. It is the same grace that God has chosen beforehand his remnant. Listen, the Jewish remnant does not work for their salvation, just as the Gentiles do not work for theirs. The believing Gentiles, unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles work for their salvation and they do not accomplish it. It is all by divine grace and not by works. People who attack the remnant, the doctrine of the remnant, its time, its place, how the kingdom is laid out in that way, it's because they're working for their salvation. And grace is a disgusting thing for them because they believe they can earn it by their own hand. So why would it be given for free if at the great cost of me laboring for it is somehow a detriment? He answers that question, but it is all by divine grace and not by works. And view is not simply God preserving man. I say it again. From human conquest of wicked regimes and rulers who want to overthrow people. That's not in view. If that were the case, there is no need to relate this passage to salvation as Paul has done. There's no need for that. Paul is clearly talking about the distinction in time by which God deals with the remnant and preserves them with distinction. Preserves them with distinction. As well as he preserves them through attempts by the seed of the serpent to extinguish them. But Paul does not write, nor do we believe that there is one distinct salvation plan for the Jews and a different salvation plan for the Gentiles or vice versa. We don't believe that Paul didn't write it. And those who make a caricature saying that we believe that based on what is being taught this morning, they are from the serpent. They are from him. They're speaking his lies and twisting things. Because all this can be reconciled just by understanding the placement of the covenants and how God has operated in the Old and the New Testament. But as I close, the next section, the next time we're together, I pray this has been an encouragement to each of us this morning uh, to the glory of God. But the next section, we will consider the timing in which Paul deals with the remnants specifically. We will consider that. We will consider why, uh, why not all are to be saved among Israel. We'll consider that with the doctrine of both the partial heart, the partial hardening and judicial hardening once and for all. And how believing Gentiles must consider their place related to both unbelieving Israel and remnant Israel. We will look at that next time together. Let's pray.